We find ourselves this morning, ourselves this morning in chapter three, and uh, we've had some time with announcements and things. I will I will zip through this faster than normal, um, but it'll be okay. I want to just begin by reading Second Timothy chapter three, verses one through nine. But realize this: that in the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money. Boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households, and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith. But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Janus and Jambres' folly was also. This is a dark passage. I mean, this is not the kind of passage that I would pick if we weren't just walking through a book. Uh, you know, if I had a topical message to do, I, I wouldn't come here to Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. It, it speaks about how the dark times are coming, how the character of these dark men who are coming to deceive those in the church, and how they, they prey upon those, the weak, how they resist authority. And you can just even sense here how Paul starts off. In the last days, difficult times will come. This is the title of the message this morning. Difficult times will come. It's really in some regard the message of Second Timothy that things are hard for the followers of Christ. Things are tough. Difficult times are here, but perseverance is what God needs. So we want to fan the flame, Timothy. Let God stir His heart in you and let's fight the fight of faith. And we've seen this all the way in chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. In chapter 1, Paul is in prison because of the Gospel. And Paul says, Timothy, hey, join with me in suffering for the Gospel according to the power of God. Or in chapter 2, Paul tells Timothy, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. His call was to endure with him in suffering. And now the message is the same. Know that times are going to be hard, but continue until the end, Timothy. There is a, a verb that dominates this whole section of Scripture. It's right there at the beginning. But realize this. It's a verb of knowledge. Literally, it's know this. It's the thrust of the paragraph. That's why the ESV translates this. Understand this. That's why the NIV says, mark this. Mark this fact that difficult times will come. And the message Eugene Peterson wrote it this way. Don't be naive. Right? When, when you encounter various trials, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, thinking that some strange thing is happening to you. No, no, in the last days, difficult times are going to come. It's no accident that throughout Second Timothy, there's a call to suffer. Paul called Timothy to suffer as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And those going into war know that the war is going to be hard. Before you enlist, you know that boot camp is going to be very difficult. They call it hell week sometimes. Trying to make it bad, but hell is a lot worse. But it starts there because it's just a very difficult time in the, the training of that. When, when soldiers go to war in Iraq, they know that things that are going to be difficult. 
When they go to Afghanistan, they know that they will be on terrorist territory. And they know they're going to have hard times. And when they, things get hard, they don't go home running to their mommies. Right? They say, this is what I've been signed up for. This is what I'm seeking to do. I know hardship. And that's what Paul's telling Timothy. Listen, difficult times are coming. Difficult days are coming. But persevere. Don't be surprised when they come. It's Timothy's call. He's entering enemy territory. He needs to be ready for the difficult times. And my first point is this. Simply know the times. Know the times. That's a straight command. Right? To realize these things. To realize that difficult, perilous, grievous times are coming. Now, when Paul talks about these difficult times coming, he doesn't talk about, oh, the economy is going to go south. Look at how hard the economy is going to Look at no one's going to have jobs. Look at how hard it's going to be. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, oh, there's going to be great natural disasters, right? It's going to be really hard because we're going to have hurricanes and tornadoes. He doesn't say that. His attention here is upon the enemies that come in upon the church and they attack the church. Men will arise and basically attack the church is what they will do. So he's saying difficult times are going to come. There's going to be pressures upon the church from outside and from inside. So realize that and know that. There's a bunch of discussion here about what exactly these last days are. What exactly are the difficult times? You may naturally think, oh, the last days might be the days just before the return of Christ. And you know what? You're right. You're right. It does refer to the time just before the coming of Christ, but it refers to a bunch more time even beyond that. The last times, the last days, is a reference between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. Everything between that time. We are in the last days. It's not just the very, very last days. It is the last days. The last days are the days in which we are living. And I say this because it's the way the Bible uses the last days. The day of Pentecost, Peter stands up, Holy Spirit comes down, people start speaking in tongues, and, and, God, and Peter says, this is what Joel spoke of. That in the last days, I will pour forth My Spirit on all mankind. Joel prophesied that the Holy Spirit would come in the last days, and the last days was after Jesus rose and ascended into heaven between His first coming and His second coming. The book of Hebrews, that's how it starts. right? God, after He spoke long ago, to the prophets in various portions in many ways, in these last days is spoken to us in His Son. The, the last days are the Sundays. The last days are the Jesus days. The days of the church. We are living in Jesus days. If the last days only meant the time just prior to Christ's return, whatever, just a few years before Christ's return, then Paul would be speaking, right, um, speaking hypothetical to Timothy. But this isn't hypothetical. This is applicable for Timothy. Now, in some regard, I think it's more applicable to us because it says in chapter 3, verse 13, evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse. So, in the last days, I do believe that there is a rising or declining decadence before the return of Christ. And it's more applicable to us. But this is how it's always been. And this is especially how it is during the days of the church. So, know the times. They are wicked times. They're grievous times. They're perilous times. They're hard times. But difficult times are part of the reality. What we need to be ready for as believers in Christ. But what should we know about these times? We should know the character of these men who will arise. Verse 2 through 5. It says, know their character. Know what enemies of the church are like. So you might spot them and avoid them. 
And, catch this, that we might not be them ourselves. Verses 2-5, through 19 characteristics of what the evil men will be in those days. They will be, and I'm just going to walk through this list, 19 different things. We're not going to spend a lot of time on on them. Maybe uh, more on the first one or two, and then we'll start picking up some speed. Here, they will be lovers of self. I don't think it's an accident that this is the head of the list because of all the 19 characteristics here of the men in the last days who will attack the church, the lovers of self is um, probably the supreme characteristic. Everything else drives from there because self-love is where all sin begins. And sin begins, we don't get our own way and we'll do whatever it takes to get our own way. Lovers of self, one word, philautoi. Philos, phileo, from love, outtoy, from like automobile, a self-driving. Philautoi. Lover of self. That's what it means. We love them ourselves. And down through the ages, there have always been those who have loved themselves. Diotrephes loved to be first. Therefore, he resists John's teaching. Demas loved this present world, so he deserted Paul. The Pharisees loved the places of honor. Therefore, when, when Jesus started to hit down their establishment, they went after Jesus. And the, the Jews of Jesus, they loved darkness rather than light, and so they crucified the Lord of glory. See, when we don't get what we want, we love ourselves so much that we will do what we can to get it. And right down through this list, if we look, we could just say, okay, yep, yep, I know why people are revilers, because they love themselves. I know why they're arrogant, because they love themselves. I know why they're boastful, because they love themselves. And we could look all the way through here that people love themselves. It's really the problem with mankind is that we love ourselves. It God's people ought not to be like this. Revelation 12.11 is a great testimony. It says that these men... Women that did not love their life even when faced with death. They didn't love their life even when faced with death. They were willing to give their life for the cause of Jesus. I just need to mention here just one thing in in passing. Um, You know, there are those in the Christian world who advocate self-love. And it used to be more popular than it is today, but with the rise of, of... of psychology coming into the church. Um, secular psychologists, basically what they say, people need to feel good about themselves. Their problem is they don't feel good enough about themselves. You need to feel good about themselves. And, and so build them up and that's going to solve their problems. And so what's happening is they brought that in the Christian world. They've taken Jesus' two commandments to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And they've turned the two commandments into three commandments. You love God. You love your neighbor. You need to love yourself. And they'll promote a self-love. Um, the Bible doesn't teach us that we need to love ourselves. You need to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Jesus assumes you love yourself. And the problem is we love ourselves too much. That's the assumption. So it's, it's not that we need to focus on loving ourselves. We do love ourselves. We need to focus on loving God more than ourselves. We need to focus on loving others. In fact, even Jesus said... You cannot be my disciple if you do not hate your own life. We ought not to love ourselves. It is the top of the list here. And these people in 2 Timothy 3 have an inordinate love for themselves. It's really at the root of the second characteristic. They'll be lovers of self, lovers of money. You see it right there. They are, they are those who, um, who love their money. They love themselves 
And if we're loving themselves, they know that if they have money, they can satisfy themselves. They want to do what they want to do, and so they'll get what they can so that they can do what they want to do. And so they love money, and money money will pursue it. And money for many is the enabler of self-love. Those who have disposable income, those who can spend what they want, will spend it on themselves oftentimes, and will just do what they want to do. And I just think about this, lovers of, of money, how up-to-date this is. In our day, lovers of money abound. It seems like the more we have, the more we seek. Like J.D. Rockefeller was asked, the billionaire, how much money is enough? You remember what he said? Just a little bit more. That's what he said. Just a little bit more. I don't care how much you have, just a little bit more is what it takes to get to enough. That's the love of money. Not the first time that Paul had written to Timothy about love of money. First Timothy 6. He wrote about those who want to get rich and fall into temptation and snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into many, to ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith, pierced themselves with many a pang. And they're playing in this world have pierced themselves with many a pang as they've wanted to get rich. But in the last days, there will be lovers of money. And with the third characteristic here, I'm, I'm getting the plane off the runway route. We're going we're gonna to start taking off. And as I, as, I, as I go through these characteristics, I want you to really think in your mind, okay, are there people that I know are like this? Or have I seen that? Maybe I've seen people like this on TV or I've heard them on the radio. Maybe maybe got a, a picture of that. Maybe a, a cartoon character pictures that. Or maybe I, I know somebody who's like that. Maybe in my family, maybe in church, maybe in your neighborhood, maybe at work. I just want you to start to put, put some people in your mind. And if it's you, I want you to repent. Say, wow, that's me. I need to repent. Because you don't want any of these things to be characteristic of you. I want to paint this picture, and then when we get to the end, I want to comment about the picture that you've painted. Boastful. Third point. Boastful is what they are. Your translation may say proud. It's, it's those who let their love for themselves come out of their mouth. Um, Jeremiah wrote, Let not the rich man boast his riches. Let not the wise man boast his wisdom. Let not the, um, the strong man boast in his strength. But these are what people boast in. They boast of their riches and they boast of their knowledge and they boast of their strength. They boast of what they have, what they know, what they can do. And they want the world to know what they have, what they know and what they can do. Business world is full of boasters. The academic world is full of boasters. Athletic world is full of boasters. Maybe you've got some boasters in your mind. Fourth characteristic, arrogant. Maybe your translation says proud. It's like, it's kind of coupled there, right, with boasters. It means the same thing. It, but the, the proud person or the, the boaster merely talks of his greatness. But you can have arrogant, proud people together and they all talk about how great they are. But this word here, the arrogant, the idea is that I lift myself above others. I put others down and I stand on top of them. Maybe you can think of people like that. Always better than someone else. Just boasting what you have, what you know, what you can do. Revilers. Maybe your translation says abusive or blasphemers. Literally, this word is blasphemers. Blasphemoi. Evil speaking. And this can be evil speaking against God. Saying wrong things about God. Evil speaking against other people. It's speaking so as to injure. 
And how many people in our world today have venom under their tongues, speaking forth with the intention to harm? Maybe you can think of somebody who's got just a poisonous mouth. There's a mouth that hurts. It's a blasphemer. It's a reviler. Disobedient to parents. Any word is applicable to us today, it's this characteristic. I mean, our culture is quickly losing discipline in the home. And when discipline goes out, obedience goes out right with it. And how many children do we see and know who do their own thing, mouth off to their parents, and as they get older, just disrespect starts coming. They're not honoring their parents. It's a sign of a decadent age with disobedient to parents. Ungrateful or unthankful is the seventh characteristic. It means someone who's not appreciative for everything. A heart that thinks they deserve to have everything that they have. They haven't lived without, so they don't know what it is to have. Unholy. This is a humanist who lives as if there's no God. Describes one who has no fellowship with God. The, the secular man. Everything for this unholy man is about everything that he can see, taste, feel, and touch. Little thought given to the spiritual realities of life. Verse 3. Unloving. Or, ESV says, heartless. It's really good. Unloving. Ah, storgoi. Ah, without. Storgoi is like family love. Without family love. I mean, family love is like the most basic of loves. Love for parents. Love for father. Love for mother. Love for brother and sister. Love for children. But this word here speaks about no love for family. Someone who is estranged from his family, he doesn't care. Heartless. It's a good translation. Number ten, irreconcilable. Your translation may say unappeasable or unforgiving. Those who seemingly can't get along with anybody. They can't make any agreement to live in harmony with other people. Because anytime you can live with people, there's always give and take. You're going to sin against them. They will sin against you. You need to overlook those in love. You need to tolerate the quirks and idiosyncrasies of people. And, and if you can't do that, if you can't tolerate, if you can't bear up under other people, you're not going to live together. And here we have people who are irreconcilable. Absolutely intolerant in the sins of others. Can't be reconciled with others. Right? And, and, and irreconcilable people are often lonely people because they can't be friends with anybody because nobody can ever live up to their expectations. Number 11, malicious gossips or your Translation may say slanderous. When a gossips with an ill content, they're not just speaking about others. They're speaking about others with an intent to harm. The word here literally is diaboloi, which we get the word devil from. The devil's a slander. He spreads lies to the herd of people. He says to Eve, Eve, you will not die. God knows in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, slandering God, tempting Eve. Saying a lie with a malicious intent. That's what malicious gossips are doing. They just imitate the devil. Number 12, without self-control. Here we're talking about the the weak man who's easily led into sin. No control over his tongue. No control over emotions. No control over his appetites. No control over his desires. He can't hold himself in. He just goes. Self-control. Brutal. Describes the savage man, the fierce fighter, the one with venom in his eyes, always ready to fight, the gladiator who will fight to his death. So picture, maybe picture a gladiator, right? Picture this kind of person in your mind. Maybe you know people that were always fighting, picking a fight. Haters of good, number 14, or despisers of good, some translations say, or literally not lovers of good. Ah, phileos, agathos. 
not a lover of good, haters of good, despising virtue, thinks of being nice as a weakness, seeing no benefit of being good. For them, the ends justifies the means. As long as they get on the other side and they're still king of the hill, all is good. Let's keep going. Verse 4. Treacherous. Use translation may say traitors. That's what it is. It's the betrayer. It's Judas. It's the one who comes to God's people and seeks to do them harm, overthrowing, right? breaking faith. Next one. We're almost done. 16. Revilers. Your translation might say rash or headstrong. This is the one who's got their mind set on something and nothing's going to stop them. They put their head down, they fall forward, and they are going to go. So picture like a bull in a china shop. Just It doesn't matter everything around them. They're just making hasty decisions. They're going after everything because they want what they want. 17. Conceited. Or you might say swollen with conceit. That's trying to get the, the, the word picture here. Just being puffed up. right? They're swollen with deceit. Or maybe your translation says haughty. It's the idea of just being drunk with pride, knowing everything. Right? Never taught, never able to be taught because they're never wrong. They're just they're swelling up is the picture here. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Here we're going to start slowing down just a little bit because there's a tie here. We started with love. There'll be lovers of self, lovers of money. Here we have now lovers of pleasure and lovers of God. Four times we see this love and every time it's pursuing a wrong object. Loving self, loving money, loving pleasure and not loving God. These are pleasure seekers. These are doing anything it takes to have their bodies met with its physical appetites of the body. They pursue whatever makes them feel good. Sex, drugs, alcohol, shopping, internet, television, football games, concerts, nightclubs, restaurants, parties, movies, whatever it takes to satisfy themselves, they're loving their pleasure rather than loving God. And the issue here oftentimes, again, isn't the thing, but it's that they love those things rather than loving God, finding their pleasure in the things rather than finding their pleasure in God, finding their pleasure in their appetites and finding pleasure in God. Okay, before we get to the last one, I want you to think about this. Do you have a picture of people in your mind? One person? I don't think that this is like um, everybody has all these characteristics. I think these are the kind of people that attack God's church in the latter days. Um, some might have some of these characteristics, most of these characteristics. Some might have just a few. But this is a picture of those who attack the church. Do you have it in your mind? Do you remind some kind of people like this? I don't want you to name them. But I do think it's helpful for you to have them in, their, in your minds because the whole point of these characteristics is that you'd be able to spot some people who are dangerous. In fact, Paul named some people already. Phygelus and Hermogenes in chapter 1. Hymenaeus and Philetus in chapter 2. Here he's going to give some historical examples of Janus and Jambres, chapter four, 3. In chapter 4, he's going to name Demas and Alexander. He's naming people about warning Timothy, stay clear from these people because they're problems. So I want you to even think about this. This isn't just theoretical. This is real practical. You might think of some people like this. Here's my question for you. So you think about these people, do you think about them as being religious? Or are they, for the most part, just outside the church? Are they religious? Because the last characteristic, perhaps even the crowning characteristic, paints a picture about how they are religious leaders. Many, I think, profess perhaps to be Christian, and many of these set up shop in a church. 
I think that's a shocking thing in this passage this week. And those who make such pretense, who think that godliness is a means for great gain, use it to their own favor. As Tom Hale said in his commentary, Christ's most dangerous enemies are those within the church. Two enemies within the church do more harm than 2,000 enemies outside the church. Verse 19, here it is. They hold to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. So see, there's this, this shell of godliness that they hold a form to, but they deny its power. I think it's describing people a little bit like the Pharisees. Outward, beautiful and clean, but inwardly are full of robbery and self-indulgence. Masters looking good on the outside, giving and praying and fasting for the world to see. And yet their lie is brutal, unholy, malicious gossips without self-control. I remember really seeing this in our trip to Israel uh, a little over ten years ago now, Avon. We uh, were flying into Jerusalem and uh, the flight from London to Tel Aviv. Is that where we came from? We have all these Hasidic Jews in the plane and uh, you know, they're all wearing their, their garb and they've got their hats on and everything like that. They were some of the most rude people who I've ever encountered. But they think they're so holy, they got their stuff, and they're going to the religious Mecca of the world. I remember even trying to speak with one of them. We were in Jerusalem trying to talk with one of them, and they just didn't want to have anything to do with me. just ignored me. Like I was a dog. Well, I'm a pagan dog to him, probably a Gentile. But I remember even as we're flying in, they, they need to say their prayers for Jerusalem. And so, you know, we had a tickets on the back of the plane and they're just arguing and talking. And it's like a red-eye flight, four in the morning, and they're just a buzz, having no interest in anybody else. But they put on a display of godliness, but they lack the genuineness. They don't have the spirit. And I think that's, a, that's really a picture of these people, they, they profess religion on the outside, oftentimes. So what's Timothy to do? He's to avoid them. We'll come back to that. Okay? But he's to know their character. Just know them so you can spot them and identify them. Secondly, thirdly, my outline, know their methods, verses 6 and 7. This is how insidious it is. Because it's not like they just put it out there like the devil, right? They, they disguise themselves as angels of light. They don't just say, here I am. Instead, they kind of sneak in unawares. They enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Think about when a lion is on the African, I'm not sure what you call it, desert, safari, tundra, wilderness, what do you call that? Sierra? Savannah. Okay, when a, when a lion is out on an African savannah, is that what you're saying? Who's he going after? Kids, you know what kind of animal a lion likes to go after? What does he go after, Drew? Elk. Okay. Yeah, kind of. What, KB, what does he go after? Okay. Yeah, baby lamb. What do you got, Lizzie? Sheep. Okay. Well, a lion, as I remember from my, my United Kingdom, whatever, they always chase down the wildebeest, right? The wildebeest is just lion food is what it is. And as the lion is out there in the wildebeest, which one of the wildebeest is going to attack? The weakest. <laughs> He's going to attack the weakest. He's going to look for the, the lame one, right? The one that's limping. It's like, that one's dinner. Or he'll look for the pregnant one. Or he'll, he'll look for the, the young one. And see, the lion is interested in easy dinner, not the biggest dinner. And so they'll go after the easiest dinner. So does the enemies of the church. Who do they prey upon? 
They try to find the weakest link and they go after them. That's what Satan did when countering Adam and Eve. Eve was weaker than Adam and so that's why Satan went after Eve. Because he even says over in 1 Timothy that Eve was deceived, Adam wasn't deceived. In some regard made his sin worse because he wasn't deceived. He full-fledged went into it. But Eve was deceived. She was the weak one. And so he went after her. Now in the days of Paul, women predominantly were the weak ones. Often uneducated. Remained at home. I think that the culture of those days is a little bit like Middle East culture today. In terms of when you ever see anything on the news, Middle East culture, all you see is men all over the place. The women are home. They're, just, they're not out. They're not educated. Uh, they don't have opportunities. And our, our culture is different. Praise the Lord. Women are educated. They're free to get around. But back then, women were sitting ducks. And so enemies went in after the women in their homes. They'd enter into households, knock on the door, come in and talk, and they would lead these women astray. They're described here as weak. Sometimes they say gullible. The King James calls them silly women. They're silly women. Um, they're described as weighed down with sins. Right? They have this burden of sin upon their back like Christian and they're weighed down. They are led on by various impulses. So they're sensual. And they're always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. So apparently they, they feel the spiritual need in their life. They, they see their sin. They're weighed down by their sin. They're, they're led on by their sin. And, and they gladly let these people come in and, and teach them. And they learn and they learn and they learn and they learn and they never come to the knowledge of the truth. It's by design they don't come to the knowledge of the truth. Because the hucksters coming in isn't going to want to teach them the knowledge of the truth because once they teach them the knowledge of the truth, they'll kick that guy out and he'll no longer have a source of income. They'll get relief from their sins forgiven, like Pilgrim's Progress. will have that, that burden roll off his back and they'll have relief. They won't be weighed down by various impulses. They won't be weighed down by these things. They'll come to a knowledge of the truth. They'll see the working of God in their life. and They won't be led about by sinful impulses in their life. Well, today things have changed. Methods are different, but fundamentally it's the same. False teachers... Don't spend a lot of time in homes. Okay, that wouldn't be as profitable as spending time on TV. Um, spending time on the radio or spending time on the internet. They still are preying upon the weak. Know that. They will search for anyone willing to give them a dollar. Beware of ministries that always say, hey, support our ministry. Beware of those ministries. My counsel is this. Support the ministries that make little of money. Everyone knows the ministries to operate need finances. But those who are talking and saying things like, maybe you've heard things, I've heard this oftentimes. Oh, give to God your faith offering. If you give it, then God will, will return it back to you. Press down, shaken together, right? abundant and overflowing. If you give, God will bless you tenfold or thirtyfold or a hundredfold. So you just, you just send that money in and you watch the blessing of God come back. You've heard that before? Okay, it's a sham, right? Because if they really believed it, you know what their message would be? Hey, we will give our money to you and we're just sending it out because we know this. We send it out. We're going to reap tenfold back again. And we just need to keep pushing it out. So you just write us and we'll send you some money because we know God is going to bring it back in again. You know they don't believe it when they're just saying, no, you give to us and it will help you. You say, well, how about you give to us and it will help you. Turn it back on them. But they don't. 
Instead, what they do is they take the money and the leaders get rich and they live in mansions and they drive their personal jets. You'd be shocked at the number of people flying in their personal jets, heads of ministries. Driving nice cars, wearing expensive clothes, and then how convenient and crafty they are to weave that into their theology and say, oh, look at how God is blessing. So we can live like that. And they claim, actually, it's a sign of godliness. I would contend they love their pleasures and they're preying upon the weak. That's what's happening today. Lots of ministries are like this. I have a pastor friend of mine who's ministering in the inner city. Um, poor, destitute. And uh, he told me of a woman who's begun come to the church and you know, she's, she's been now with him for, what, five, seven, eight years a decade, I'm not sure. He's, he's been there a long time. So she's come and, and been there. But before she came, I don't know if she has children or not. I kind of think uh, husband's not in the picture. Maybe it's just her. I'm not sure. But, but she was persuaded by some type of ministry to help them build their big million-dollar building, multi-million-dollar building. And I sense it's just down the street of where she lived. Uh, just a couple miles from this church where she's now going, where my friend is pastoring. I don't know the details, but I know my pastor, my pastor friend said that she mortgaged her house so as to be able to help build this big ministry place and whatever got her token brick in return or whatever. Mortgaged her house to the tune of tens of thousands of dollars. Tens of thousands of dollars that, quite frankly, she did not have. And basically then the church has gotten rich at her expense, she's still trying to pay that thing off. She had no business mortgaging her house. She was weak to begin with, but now she's weaker. She was poor to begin with, now she's even poorer. She was needy to begin with, and now she's even more needy. And yet this church that is supposed to help the poor is actually what? Taking advantage of the poor. And my pastor friend just laments. He just says that's just how it is as he sees the inside of some of the stuff. And really it's nothing new. The scribes and Pharisees devoured widows' houses, taking advantage of the weak, taking advantage of the poor. It's how it always is. That's why James says pure and undefiled religion is to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. True religion will give to the weak and will help the weak. You just read through the law. God is always concerned about those without rights He's always concerned about the women without rights. He's always concerned about the orphan without rights. Always trying to help them and provide for them and protect them and guard them against the society. That's how true religion works. Helps the weak, helps the poor, and thereby modeling the Gospel. See, the, the good news that Jesus came for us who are weak and poor and needy, and we cried out to Him and He gave us everything we need. We come to God not because we're strong, but we come to God because we're weak and we need help. And Jesus provides that help. We come to God not because we're rich and have lots to offer Him. Rather, we come to God because we're poor and He in Christ Jesus has given us an indescribable gift. We turn to God not because we have it all together spiritually, but because we don't have it together spiritually. And we know that God in Christ Jesus can give us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And so we give it ourselves to God and just say, I got nothing. And God comes back then in blessing to us to help us. It's a gospel. Jesus came to give life by dying upon the cross for our, for our sins in our place. We need but to turn from our sins and just say, God, I need you. I need help. And there's the gospel. God will then work in us and transform us into the image of His beloved Son. 
But these people do it opposite ways. They are in it for themselves. They're in to get rather than to give. Let's look at my last point. You need to know their character. You need to know their methods. You need to know their end. Verses 8 and 9. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith. But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Janus and Jambres' folly was also. Now Paul goes here back in the annals of Jewish history until the time of Moses. mentions two men by name, Janus and Jambres. And these men are not mentioned in the Old Testament, but they are mentioned in the Jewish Targum, which holds the Jewish tradition. These were the magicians who combated against Moses in the day of Pharaoh. I trust you remember the story. Moses, the messenger of God, comes to Pharaoh with a message and asks the Jews might leave to go and worship. Pharaoh says no. He says, well, work a miracle. Moses did. He threw it on his staff and it became a snake. And then there were these other magicians who were wise men and conjurers and they threw down their staffs and made a snake. I don't know how that happened, but they did exactly the same thing by their, their sorcery and their magic. They threw it down. Some of they did. And Jewish history names these men who did that threw their staff down as Janus and Jambres. And they opposed Moses every step of the way. When Moses had water in the Nile turned to blood, they turned water into blood as well. Where they got the water from, I'm not exactly sure, but they did the same things. They sent frog, when Moses sent frogs over land, Janus and Jambres did the same thing. They opposed Moses. And I think that they had the ear of Pharaoh. They were the wise men. And, and I think that they were probably mocking Moses and Aaron all the way until the third plague came, the gnats. And when Moses called down gnats upon all the land of Egypt, the magicians suddenly said, no, we, we can't do this. And they counseled Pharaoh and said, this is the finger of God. In other words, we're exposed. We can't do this. But this is God's work. These are true and servants of God. But they were exposed then. Pharaoh's heart was hardened, didn't listen to them. As the Lord had said, Janus and Jambres really are a test case for Timothy to reflect upon. Spiritual leaders will face opposition from all quarters. And the opposition will be relentless, but in the end, their fruit will be shown. Their folly will be obvious to all. Just as Janus and Jambres, their folly was also evident to everybody when they couldn't reduplicate the plagues. They couldn't stop the plagues at all. And I think that gives Timothy some encouragement just to know that these people will be out there doing their thing, but eventually the folly of the, the health wealth guys, it'll be shown, it'll be seen. Even if we laugh at it, many will be seduced, sucked in, but it'll be obvious to many. So know them, right? Know their character, know their methods, and know their end. Here's my last point. I'll finish quickly. Avoid them. These are really, if you think about even a bigger outline, you might even say this. Know them and avoid them. So all this text is about. Realize this, chapter 3, verse 1. Realize what? Realize everything. You're going to have difficulty and these people are going to be this way and they're going to do things by crafty means, stealthy means into households. But in the end, they're going to be exposed. So know them. Know their characters. Know their methods. Know their ends. And avoid them. I skipped that last little phrase at the end of verse 5 because I want to come back to that and just say this is the second verb, the second command in the passage. Avoid them. He summarized the whole passage. Know them and avoid them. And simply the, the call here is clear. It just says stay away from them. People like that, just don't even get involved with them. 
Don't be watching them. Don't be listening to them. Don't be buying their books. Don't be helping them. Just avoid them. Keep them out there. We'll be in here. Now, if people like that come into the church, I mean, certainly don't just ignore them. You need to root them out of the church. Clearly. If they're like that. For the safety of the people, right? You don't let a wolf walk around in the flock. You get a wolf out. You can identify one. But if they're on the radio and television or some other church, you just need to avoid them. If you go into a church like that, you just need to get out. They want attention. That's how they flourish. Don't give them attention. Just ignore them. Avoid them. You don't need to know everything about them. You don't need to study into everything about them. You don't need to enter into every controversy. You don't need to correct them. You don't have any responsibility for them. They're out there. They are self-deceived. They will be exposed. They know what they're doing. There's no responsibility that we have towards them. Just avoid them. I think that's what Paul is saying here in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Is it in the difficult times? Right? You've you got to be wise how to, how to teach the people. We saw two weeks ago about how we talked about don't wrangle about words. Right? Just tell them not, not to speak that way. Don't be contentious. Don't be argumentative. We saw that last week. The Lord's bondservant, chapter 2, verse 24, must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all. But when people are like this, when they're just so boastful, when they're wicked, when they're deceiving, just avoid them. Keep away. And that goes for Timothy. That goes for people in the church. We should just avoid that kind of stuff. Next week, we'll get into verse 10. Hopefully, there will be more light as we see Timothy's example about where he followed and how Paul is different in his list than the other list that we had. So, let's pray. Father, I pray that You would help us with these things. Help us to apply them. Help us to see and notice and spot these sort of men. Help us to avoid them. Help us to not be like them. And God, I would pray as I went through that list of 19 characteristics, as You've convicted us, may we turn from the things that that might touch us. And that You'd help us in every way God, to, to walk in a way pleasing in Your sight. We love You. and Thank You for the Gospel. Help us to suffer well in this life. I would pray also just for this upcoming Kids Club. I pray it would be a profitable time where You would bless and honor that. Help the kids here be exposed to the truth in the right way, not in the wrong way. Father, for the glory of Jesus we pray. Amen.